Welcome to the Real Agronomist Podcast with Kyle from Stall Agronomy. You never know what I may say or who will be on, but you know it'll be real because that's me. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast with Kyle from Stall Agronomy. Today, our guest is Kyle Oki from the Agronomist Happy Hour, which is kind of weird being with just one of them after being on their podcast twice. So, Listen, as Kyle and I talk about just random topics that kind of come to what we just generally talk about, and a lot of it ends up being about biologicals and our experience with no-till cover crops and different herbicides. So hopefully you guys enjoy. All right, so I got Kyle Oki, the agronomist happy hour guy, not the agronomist happy hour. There's only there's only one of them here, so Jason's not here. So this is the first time you and I have talked on a podcast alone without Jason, so what we had two on yours so now you're on mine hey you got to do the favor back but i've been asking you forever so <laughs> i gotta gotta come on uh, the rogue agronomist podcast and talk i'm way too busy making tiktoks and trying to post to like every social media platform it gets i almost need to just like hire somebody just to do the social media crap and then just do everything else myself oh i wish i could afford that <laughs> <laughs> me too yeah, I, I love the podcasting part, but the the social stuff, it's a love-hate thing. Some days I really enjoy it. Some days I'm like, Ugh, okay, you know, here we go. Yeah, you make those posts. Like, I'm, I'll make a post where it's like, this is going to be a great post. Everybody's going to like this. One person likes it. And then I have some obscure post that doesn't make, you know, it's just a random comment. And then it, like, almost goes viral. And you're like, what the hell is going on? I can almost guarantee you I have... A lot of likes on a post right now on Twitter. Yeah, a bunch more. But you like to tackle those topics that uh stir a little controversy though. That's uh it it definitely gets a discussion going. Uh be that good or bad, or they're pissed at you or if they agree with you. Uh it seems <laughs> like you, they they let you know one way or the other. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know why I'm blessed with that. But I mean, we talked about that in your guys' podcast. The person's like, "You're like this all the time." Like, yeah, that's me. But hey, it's who you are. It's pure, <laughs> pure authentic. It's uh, there, there's no, there's no front or show you're putting on. This is 100% you. Yeah, and you guys have been making the rounds quite a bit lately because you've got, uh, you guys were on Tommy's. Were you on his podcast or what were you guys on? Yep, we were on his Egg Bowl podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> at least she did it remotely so that wasn't too bad probably that was fun well i have not gotten the privilege of being in studio with him like i'm guessing i'm guessing you've been in the valparaiso studio haven't you yeah i've been in tommy's basement yep yeah yeah well he's got a basement in north dakota too <laughs> just in the basement of a bank yeah it's but, uh, that's yeah he always makes it seem like that's like some huge really nice studio and um yeah, the basement one's fine, whatever. I mean, I grew up 30 minutes from Valparaiso. I actually lived in Valpo for a summer. So, but yeah, Tommy's a really good guy. You get kind I of like Tommy. Yeah. After a while. yeah. <laughs> I think uh, I met Bridget for the first time at Farm Progress this year or last year. I guess it's 23 now. Um, and then she's like, oh, I, she was talking to me about something and she was in the media tent and she said something about Tommy. And I was like, oh, yeah, I haven't seen him here yet. She goes, oh, he's just in here. I think he's not recording anything. Why don't you come on in? So I actually got to go in the media tent 
with Bridget at, at Farm Progress, which was really weird. But that, that was, would be a unique experience. It was different. They had like <laughs> a little row of like computers and like recording areas that you can record stuff. And like, this would be nice, but I'll never get invited to that. Yeah. And Bridget is media. I mean, yeah, she I is the media. So like it, she was explaining that whole thing. It sounded so cool. It sounded like a, she's like, you guys have to be at farm progress show next year. You have to show up like, well, I guess we better make a point. Yeah. It's like, uh, I'd like to go to your guys's uh, agronomy on ice thing, but it always seems like I have like enough stuff coming up. And <laughs> it's, uh, it's not going to be for the faint of heart next week when agronomy and ice happens now. Cause, uh, our temperatures now are forecasted for, Highs in the single negative digits and lows in the negative high 20s to low 30s. That's is that uh, Fahrenheit or Celsius out there? Fahrenheit. Yeah, <laughs> we're north, but we're not Canada yet. But when you get into those temperatures, Fahrenheit and Celsius, I think once What's you're at negative case? 40, it's the same. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I think one day next week, I think we got some single, there's maybe two or three days we have some single digit highs. Um, man, Christmas this year, we were, I think one morning we woke up, it was like minus 20 here and that was just bad. It was brutal. It was the coldest we've been since 2019 at Christmas, which is just insane. Yeah, it was a pretty wild Christmas this year. Uh, our heating bill was incredible. (laughs) Yeah. And now we got another round of it coming here and looks like we'll have another Arctic blast or polar vortex shoot south and and get us in the states here again so it's uh it's good for ice making it's good for a grounding and ice just got to bundle up and and uh be prepared it's yeah, all it takes quite a few guys ice fishing around here that have been falling through some stuff so we could use some thicker ice right now but. trouble is we got so much snow on top of it it's like a just a quilted blanket on top of everything so it doesn't so there's it, the worst part is it gets super cold like this and then you got to have something with tracks to drive around the ice. And then you punch through the snow and it's slush and water pockets underneath the snow. And it's so dang cold that it freezes right away and it rips up tracks. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting deal out there. We have, so it snowed probably an inch today. And that is the first like solid inch we've had since uh, just about Christmas. It has been brown here pretty much the entire month of January. We are the third warmest January on record up until a couple of days ago. Um, Milwaukee is the first wow. January ever on record. The The problem is climate change. Yeah, they're going to say, wow, look how worse it's getting. Well, we just beat 1880. So, and then, and then you got poor us in North Dakota that have been under a foot of snow or two <laughs> feet of snow some places I, for month two months yeah it seems like everywhere but wisconsin <laughs> we were we are the wettest spot in the midwest as far as moisture goes and then we haven't been getting any snow um i think we did get like three quarters of an inch of rain the other day it's just been a really strange winter it's probably a good thing if we could get zero snow cover and we get those temperatures next week uh to try to kill some rootworm uh but what will probably happen is we get just enough snow back that we insulate enough on the ground. I mean, what an inch of snow, our value is actually pretty significant. It doesn't take much snow to insulate the ground. So, no, you can actually see it. Uh, so 
In North Dakota, we've got uh, the North Dakota Agricultural Weather Network, Endon, is what they call it. Just a mesonet <laughs> um, is, is uh, I guess, maybe what the official term is if you look at other states that do it. Anyways, one of the new uh, instrumentation on a few of the stations is the the ground temp under, or just not the soil temp, but uh, how deep the ground's frozen. It'll go how many inches deep. Yep. And you can almost gauge where the snow depth sits for insulation because some of our ground frost is only six to eight inches deep in some places. And we probably got the equivalent of two and three feet of snow in some of those areas. Yeah, I can actually, our local national weather service keeps track of that. I'd have to look and see if I could actually find that, but I know it's not, we can't have very deep frost. There's been a lot of guys digging and they, they basically can't hit frost. It's been really, really shallow this year for us. Well, you guys have been soil sampling pretty late into the year versus normal too, haven't you? Yeah, I gave up after a while. I mean, so I ended up putting some mud terrains, uh, BF Goodrich mud terrains on the gator now because I punctured after two years, those tires got bad enough. I just started puncturing them on freaking corn stalks, even. It, uh, it got really bad. Um, I mean, you've done that with four wheelers and stuff. Once they get soft at all, you, you puncture them with, I mean, soybean stubble just rips the heck out of the things. So, yeah, I, I did that, and then I essentially I was fixing flat tires left and right, and then I started tearing boots and on CV joints, and I'm like, you know what, I'm done for the year. So I just called it one day, and then I had a guy send me something in the middle of December. I think you can go soil sampling today. I was like, nope, that's it. I'm done. That's not going to happen the rest of the year. Like you guys are done. Yep, I've got spring stuff lined up already, and I'm I'm looking forward to it. But at the same time, spring is usually uh, I used to never look forward to spring soil sampling just because uh, when you're on the retail side, things just got so haywire. You couldn't add that on top of all the seed deliveries that are coming in and going out uh, and, and this the the burn down chem stuff coming. It, it, it just You couldn't afford to be out of the office for too long. But now I don't have that as an independent consultant. So it's kind of nice to... I can get out in the spring and get some of that done as long as it's not too wet. That'll be the issue. I probably won't be able to get everywhere, but yeah, it's Southeast Wisconsin. It seems like the the minute that the snow melts and it's dry enough to get in the fields, it's like the day we need to be planting. That's why we, we have a big trouble getting burn down done in spring. And so I'm pretty much, I don't, I try not to do any spring sampling. Even if I could, I probably wouldn't. Um, but yeah, we got enough other stuff going on in spring anyway. I've got a few different trials and stuff set up that I got to go spread right away in spring on some alfalfa, and which is like the one crop we would really, really appreciate having some snow cover on, but that's probably not going to happen. So what kind of trials are you working on for this year? You said on alfalfa? Yeah, so, I mean, you remember the whole gypsoil craze five, six, seven, eight years ago? I do. Uh, can't even get the stuff anymore they won't even reply i mean i've had people call them i've had people email them i've tried to get a hold of them on social media um i think gypsum is pretty much gone i don't know i know a couple of our local power plants have switched away from coal um, one's natural gas um, one is completely shutting down um, and the others have switched to an ultra low sulfur source of coal 
so there's not much gypsum actually coming off of the scrubbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've got some really, really tight clays along the lake, uh, actually like along the lake as in two miles from Lake Michigan. Um, and I'd like to put some gypsum on it. The problem is retail is like, oh, pelletized gypsum is the same thing. It is, but you, you need like 2,000 pounds to do anything uh, to try to loosen up any kind of clay. So we're going to go and probably throw a couple thousand pounds. We're going to throw like a 4,000 pound, probably 500 pound, and then like 200, which is what retailers have been telling guys will change soil types. And 200 pounds isn't going to do anything. It's going to just use the sulfur in a way the calcium goes. But the problem is when we do a lot of this gypsum stuff on heavy clays here, we do seem to knock off a lot of potassium. And that's that's the scary thing because you're trying to knock off magnesium is what you're trying to do. Replace it with calcium. Um, when we're knocking off magnesium, we'll knock off potassium also. So we'll leach potassium and magnesium, replace it with some calcium. But if you're a dairy, that's not the worst thing in the world because um, you're going to have plenty of calcium or potassium from manure. So, But the funny thing is that area, um, that's like 7.5 to 8 pH. So we're going to put a lot of sulfur on there just to try to get the, the pH down a little bit. Oh, super interesting. So you got high pH that's very magnesium uh, driven. Yeah, yeah um, there's like a limestone that. quarry right up there too. So you'll, but we yeah. have dolomitic limestone. So the depth to limestone in parts of Southeast Wisconsin can be limestone poking out of the ground. I mean, there oh, are wow. spots where uh, I got a guy with uh, Pellicil loam and like beautiful Illinois soil type. And 12 inches down is like a solid bedrock layer. So amazing soil and then bedrock. And there's no like subsurface soil or anything. It's, it's, so if it's dry, it's really dry. And if it's wet, it's really wet. And you can't drain it because you can't put tile into 12 inches of bedrock. So it's, it's pretty tough in spots, but it's not like that everywhere. But we do have more magnesium here. Um, and our pHs tend to be fairly, they're not way out of whack. Uh, every once in a while, you'll get a few fields that are, but for the most part, we don't see a lot under six. Um, but if it's under six, you might as well fix it, obviously, but uh, it's pretty rare. And we've noticed them dropping a little bit more as we start using more and more sulfurs. So, Yeah, we're, we're in a unique area here. Uh, we've got a lot of soil pH below six, but it's happened in such a slow way. We don't have lime quarries close by, and so it's it's very cost prohibitive to just go spread lime because it's so much freight. Like we, there's sources available, but by the time you get a custom spreader hired and you get product brought to the field, just to get a a two ton rate out there, you're spending a hundred dollars an acre to get to get lime out. It's uh. Yeah, it's it's gotten where we realize we have some issues and it's kind of death by a thousand very, very slow cuts. But we're just learning how to deal with it as we're slowly working on soil amendments because it took us 30 years to get here on on just long term no till on the limestone quarries. Well, it's not a limestone quarry. It's it's uh, it's beet lime. So oh, it comes, okay. it comes from lagoons, uh, 
precipitated out of uh, beet lagoons. Yeah, I mean, you could have a limestone quarry in your backyard pretty much, and to truck it to you, they're going to charge you like 10, 12 bucks a ton. Um, for most of the most of the lime in the larger farming areas, it's probably at least 20 to $25 a ton just to get it trucked. So, okay. I mean, an average spread cost is probably in that $30 a ton range. We're, we're about, uh, the, the person I talked to last, right at about $40 just to get it delivered a ton to the field. And then you had to pay for application and then they, their, their rate went up, uh, depending on how many tons you wanted to apply. So they had like a base rate for two tons an acre. If you need an average of three, it's like another $5 an acre. If you need an average of four tons an acre, it's another $5 an acre. And so it could get, it could add up fast on us. It's not so bad in Southeast Wisconsin. I mean, you got 30 acre field. It's like, you can pile it right by the road and you can zip right back to the pile and load up. And out there, it's probably like a mile back to the pile sometimes. So it might be a little different than it is here. I mean, yeah, we can, it's not terrible. I mean, there's lots of trucking companies and stuff around here. I mean, then there's limestone quarries. There's one uh, about a mile from my house. There's one about four or five miles north of my house. There's hair all over the place. But. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, speaking of trial things, I thought it would be fun to share um, because of our soil acidity issue. Um, we do a lot of zone soil sampling and yeah, and there's still a lot of just whole field composite. And our general field size is more in like the 160 acre quarters uh, of field size here. But um, typically zones will split things into five zones and for productivity. And what we're what I'm finding and talking to a lot of other consultants here too, is that we're seeing some of our best soils where we have our higher organic matter and better water holding capacity and, and better overall crop production is where our lowest pH areas are, which on long-term no-till makes sense because the more nitrogen you mineralize, the more nitrogen applied in those areas, you're just displacing more calcium yeah. out of those areas over time. And so we're, we're leaching it down, but um, we're starting to see herbicide certain herbicides like we we rely so heavily on ppos in our pre-emerge like sulfentrazone is if if we lose activity to sulfentrazone we've got so many minor crops that are a big deal for us in north dakota especially where i live um sunflowers field peas um dryable uh, dryable uh, beans in other places uh, even even some uh, well, even soybeans, we use sulfentrazone. It's such a huge pre for us on kosher for that weed, a weed that you probably never have to deal with in Wisconsin. Yeah. And, and yeah. And, and we say the same thing about water hemp. I mean, Eastern North Dakota deals with water hemp, but Western, we don't deal with it yet. Um, I'm sure that's coming. And in any ways, we uh, we're so sensitive. And when I say we, I mean like all the farmers and, Everyone is so sensitive to causing phytotoxicity to their sunflowers, to their field peas, to their dryable beans on hilltops, on eroded calcareous hilltops that have high pH, low organic matter, and all the right combination of things that have sulfentrazone be extremely active and, and cause so much crop injury that 
everyone looks at that and goes, well, I don't want all, all these burnt little eroded knolls and in hilltops in my fields. So we, we automatically go down to the lower end of the rate spectrum on what we use. And we have the opposite going on in the rest of the field where we got this beautiful ground, high organic matter, low pH, and we're not getting the control on kosha like we once have. And so we're actually starting to see resistance issues, which I'm not surprised by. But anyways, uh, my, my trial thing. So I'm playing with that now. I think variable rate residual herbicide is going to be a big player for us in the future. And going to get my old Winfield stuff out and and uh, get the, the hand boom and start finding where the breaking points are. How, how high can we go? And how low can we go and try to set up recommendations for variable rate of sulfentra zone to start, but could be other things. Yeah, you needed a gator like me. I'm putting, uh, we're going to put a 22 foot boom, I guess, on it with a Raven 450 controller and a 100 gallon tank. And then uh, we're going to throw all the green star crap in it for recording everything. And we're going to do some foliar trials and different stuff with that. And then, oh, cool. Got a spinner we put on it too. We did some AMS on some soybeans. And so we'll do some spinning on some different products this spring. And we'll see how this stuff all kind of works out. But yeah, that's uh that's gonna be a big thing. Well, most of those guys, most of those guys farming you work with, I mean, just to have a skid sprayer in the back of their gator or side by side is to me, I think is a good thing to have. Those are handy little tools. Yeah, I mean, and to throw a rate controller in there, it's just three section control and everything else. It's pretty handy little deal we'll see how it all works um i have one guy go 100 gallons that's going to be too heavy for your gator i think it's rated for like 1200 pounds so it should be fine i'm like well maybe i just fill it to 80 gallons what you could i'm like yeah i don't have to doesn't mean you have to fill it full i don't have a farmer (laughs) mentality sometimes where i have to fill everything chock full you know if it's 100 gallons you got to put exactly 100 gallons in it i've been you know like how you guys have uh because uh, I think I've seen pictures where you've had this. You you guys set up those fancy like uh, the vacuum cleaner setups for cleaning out, you know, and you have it in the back of your gator and all that. I want to yep. set up. Uh, we do we do planter stuff and some trials, but uh, I'll probably leave that to the seed guys. But one thing I've been thinking about is I've actually gone and started piecing it together uh, with our local pump store that does the tanks and all that. But to try to set up a plot sprayer in. You know, I, I don't have the gator yet. Maybe after a couple of years, I can, I can be a little more of a high roller and get that fancy one that I can tie in the, the uh, forty six hundred monitor and all that into and have the the, the green star globe. But uh, I'm thinking about just setting up a bunch of small uh, five gallon cone bottom tanks that are square, so you can set it up on a, on kind of a skid that you can load it in the back and and then have uh, just all the uh, they're not the rate controllers, but the um, the section control. You can also turn that into a yep. tank on and off. Yep, I've seen those too. I yep. So I want to try to make a plot sprayer. Comes over to the side so you can go spray. Um, I got a few guys with those, but that's all speed and pressure. And the guys have been spraying with Raven controllers for 30 years. You got to try to relearn speed and pressure. They don't like that too much. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, it's really hard. To, I mean... I can maintain 11 in a in my UTV pretty easy. That's kind of what I scout at is usually about 11. Mm. Uh, uh, I mean, for the most part, we're probably spraying around 14, 15. 
So that's what I, I don't know. That's why my comfort level is there. I can, I can hit that pretty easy. So we'll see how this all works. And I'm sure I've sprayed with the Raven controller before. So I'll have to hit manual when I start and then just mash it until I get up to speed and then put it in auto. And I, I do want to set up one of those sprayers in the back of my side by side though, because, uh, our application speed on a 120 foot boom on those big commercial sprayers, which a lot of our farmers got out here, uh, we like to travel at that 18, 19 mile an hour range sure. at, at application speed and and at the expense of usually you don't maintain a perfect boom height all the time if you're not in those pancake flat fields and you got rolling terrain. So uh, we we live. I live in the land of uh, the water is for the cattle, and so so we we do a lot of five and seven gallon carrier volume I, rates. I have to talk people down from twenty gallons. I'm like, you don't need twenty. You can go with fifteen. A lot of our custom guys think twenty is like the ticket. I'm like, you don't need that high of gallons on everything. Uh, you're not spraying Liberty, especially pre-emerge. You don't need that high of gallons if you're just going out there just putting residual down, but the, the company I actually I'm using is FS Manufacturing. They're out of West Fargo. Yep. Very so. familiar with those guys. They're actually a sponsor for Agronomy on Ice. Nice. We'll, we'll, we'll see those folks there. I'm, I'm excited to see uh, if, how they're all going to they're gonna set up and bring things out in the cold. I don't know if they'll have tank displays and all that or if they're just going to be more of a tailgating feel and be barbecuing and all that, but uh, it'll be yeah. fun. Yeah, I've got uh, one of the dealers locally that handles them. That was the one that I could find that actually would fit what I kind of wanted. And I know I can tie into all the John Deere stuff and essentially use some of the base wiring harnesses and the John Deere GPS we can put on there. So it should work pretty good. Hopefully we can get that all done. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how this is going to work yet, but we'll figure it out. Um, yeah. But that's a benefit of working with you as a consultant. I mean, that's uh I, I think I think it not cheap. I'll tell you that much. No, and and it's you strive to find things like that. Like I think yep. uh some some farmers don't realize what they're getting with a consultant sometimes. Like you because there's a big difference between some of that's just scouting your crops and kind of giving an idea like, hey, you got resistant water hemp, maybe you should add this, <laughs> or or time, you know, herbicide applications and no one to do insecticide and fungicides like nah usually you get a good consultant and they're a lot more invested than that they they want to go what are the things we can try to really improve your bottom line and sometimes it comes out of your pocket you know where you're not charging them extra for that you already charge them what you charge them but you're like we need to figure out how to you know what what are the practices that can change how can you improve all that well there's it's, even there's a there's one agronomy group that I know does some consulting and scouting around here. And they were out at like R6 soybeans going up and down the rows, 30 inch rows with little mini dirt bikes and covering every inch of every field like a good scout would. But that's not exactly what consulting is. I mean, I, I always tell guys, do you want me to write up a scouting report every time I'm in the field? It's like, that's not going to do you any good if I go through every single field and 80% of it's good. You know, we, we just try to tend to focus on the bad acres and some of the good acres and improving the bad and then maintaining or even improving some of the good acres. But yeah, I, if you want somebody who's just going to go out there and run around in a circle, you can hire somebody to do that. Have, you know, 
your nephew go out there and take pictures with his iPad and put it in climate or something, that'd be fine. But what I've tried to do is be different, not because I want to be different. I mean, I always talk about that as I don't want to be different just to be different. We're being different because that's kind of who we are. And having some of that kind of stuff, I think is going to be kind of cool to have. And I wish I had access to like a hand boom like you used to have when you worked at Winfield. That would have been nice uh, to do some fungicide trials and stuff on taller corn. But um, yeah, and already can get I can already can get this stuff. It's a place in Louisiana. If you want to go, I'm good. Don on the backpack stuff. <laughs> and, suit. Yeah, in the Tyvek suit, I still do that stuff. It's uh, I think uh, your basic stuff I bought into like a thousand bucks gets you into the the air. Oh, yeah, the pneumatic stuff where you you're hand walking on things and all that, but to do real application. If real application height, speed, and try to match the exact situation where you're doing some of that with your with your gator, I think will be more beneficial than some of the hand boom stuff. The hand boom thing works for certain things like your fungicide at, you know. Well, I think, uh, yeah, and everybody's big thing is drones right now, and everybody's like, why don't you have a spray drone? I said, well, I don't want to spend 40, 50 grand for one. I don't want to have to get a specially built trailer just for handling the thing and getting all the licensing i'm like by the time you're done it's it's a six figure sum just to have the thing well you better you better be custom applying with it because you got to turn some money on that that's a a lot of money acres a day i mean you just can't make that work I, i don't see the math to it yet it's not scalable just yet um the only way i see this happening is i'm a farmer and i have 20 of these drones I press a button in the morning and they load themselves, they charge themselves and they just go spray fields, you know, and they, they swarm the field. Essentially they just, they're all flying around spraying and it's all coordinated. And all I have to do is tell them what to do and keep the chemicals in the mini bulk full or full or whatever. And that's about it. That's the only way I see drones being a real scalable thing for agriculture. Um, or you have somebody that shows up with a semi-trailer and there's 20 drones in the back of that thing and it goes out and flies and does the field and it, it's just the only way it's going to happen but that's 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 always been in my head the vision on that is to have one singular drone that can put out a 10 15 foot swath and and it can only carry 10 15 gallons on it at a time yep. it's it's just not going to get enough done but if you could run synchronously like a flock of six to 10 of them. Palm swarm. Then I could, yeah. Yeah. The swarm. Yeah. Then swarm I could see something mark. happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, John Deere had a thing they put out must've been about four or five years ago. Uh, the, like the future farming thing. And it was like a guy with like a, you know, everybody always thinks touch screens are going to go translucent. So they had like a translucent touch screen and stuff. And he, you know, turn on the irrigators. Everything is all done on his, on his computer and his iPad or whatever. And yeah, it's pretty much kind of one thing. Um, they're talking about like weeders that run up and down the road and mechanically pull the weeds. And, you know, you'd have like a little army of those things running around. And I think that's going to be the way to go. I don't think it's going to be Joe Blow and his brother buying two drones and driving their trailer around and spraying. I think if we do drones, it's going to be the farm tells it what to do or, you know, the agronomists are, um, their consultant has control of that. We agree on a rate and everything. And then I press a button and the things go out and fly a field. So, and I don't think we always talk about like 
the future of agriculture? Is it like AI and it's going to tell us what's going to happen? Um, you just ask any of the university retailer or extension people right now what they think about TarSpot and how to replicate it. <laughs> I was on a on a webinar this morning where they were talking about TarSpot and they can't replicate it in the same way they can in the field. Um, it's just not, they can't inoculate it the same way as some of these other diseases we do. Um, I just don't see where a computer program is going to make some of these decisions and be able to do it the way that experience can pay for. Um, yeah, it'll be able to help predict stuff, but we deal with mother nature and mother nature is inherently unpredictable. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy how like that, uh, what, what's the big AI chat bot chat CPT or GPT or something like that. Anyway, there's, it's pretty mind blown if you ever played with that, like how strikingly scary it is to think you're talking to a person and then they're sharing like how they're passing like the the boards to pass law school and like to become a medical doctor and stuff but there's still going to be uh, the aspect of understanding the things that aren't on the internet yet that it can't learn and that that and a true agronomist knows but i think, I think the farm of the future will have more drivers and there'll be more uh, autonomy that that's out there. And a farm may have instead of, you know, like maybe some of these bigger ones, not your small family farm thing, but, you know, your your farm that has to cover five plus thousand acres is going to have somebody that's really good with technology. Someone that understands how to run the driverless tractors and and they're going to spend more time on, you know making that operate. And then they're probably going to have an agronomist Yep. that either, either through a consultant, through a third party, or they hire one of their own, depending on their size and scale, because they're going to need someone that actually understands the inner workings of just how to tie it all together to help, you know, say like, Hey, you're seeing spray. Well, this is good, but you're you got to have an agronomist tell you, Hey, if it's seeing spray, you know, if it sees a water hemp, what's going to spray versus when it sees a lamb's quarter versus when it sees you know, some, you know, foxtail or something like that. I mean, it's AI isn't, I don't think going to be able to tell you exactly like, yep, you should use this mix. Yeah. I mean, I can see some of that stuff. Um, I think where it's going to struggle is when, you know, there, there are things that, you know, you can take a tissue sample, you can take um, infrared imagery, you can do, do all these things. You'll pick up on things. Um, but patterns that you've seen before in the past and things that you just kind of pick up on that, that feel sometimes is, is still, I think really going to be hard to ever replicate. Um, that's, that's, that's a good way to put it. Um, so, I mean, you know, that we've been going down this road, but like, I've been trying to talk to more people about biologicals, more people about regenerative agriculture and in some down that path and there's just some things that just don't understand yet and some things that i'm gathering are uh, you have more of a feel or you see more of a trend that data can't really uncover yep. and and one of those things and i don't know where you stand on this but um it, i've talked to more and more people that utilize the haney test and you look at a lot of university and they're looking at correlation between your standard nutrient extraction methods and what is correlated to yield on making recommendations. And then you look at what the Haney test is 
and they don't match all the time. They, they kind of follow each other, but you get some agronomists that have utilized that, that I wouldn't say like there's an exact equation or there, there aren't exact numbers, but they can pick up those biological testing methods and they can look at that and they go, yep, I know for sure after I took this pre-stock or pre-side dress test, you got enough in there where you can tone back your side dress and, and you don't need to, there, there's like, it's a trend or a feel and it's not until you're seeing enough and doing enough with it. Like, I don't think an equation can do those, yeah. those calculations. The scary thing is um, you can do a lot of these different things. You know, we've, I've done some PSNTs and we've done a bunch of different, like, you know, you feel like you should be putting more on, but they're like, I'm going to go with what this says. And, and there was uh, Ohio State had a study where they compared um, their flat agro- agronomic rate, which is like 180 pounds of N. And they did the MRTN and they did some other prescription stuff. And they used PSNTs, the flat rate won. <laughs> it was just like, and it, it won on profitability too. I mean, MRTN is going to supposedly be the most profitable number or whatever. But the reason it probably wins is weather. I mean, it, it's, when when it's wet here uh and different soil types i mean there's so many factors that go into play with some of these things um i don't discredit the haney thing we're still i'm still kind of researching this stuff um i'm trying know. to learn from it too i just there's a lot i don't know but there's enough where i want to incorporate it into what i do i Have think there's anybody, more feel is anybody there is no using the haney test that's not selling stuff <laughs> yes, there's actually one person I know that's not selling stuff to you. I know the one it. guy, and he's, <laughs> and he's in Wisconsin. Yes, actually, um, yeah, I gotta, I gotta get you hooked up with him. It's a, sure. uh, there's a, yeah, I found him. Ex- we we just kind of total random thing. We hooked up with a new guy as a podcast guest, and so I'll, sure. I'll let you know. Yeah, there's, I mean, but for the most part, you, you want to talk about. We're not going to name the companies. There's one really big one that um, I had somebody call me from another state and then ask me about selling their products. And I'm like, yeah, you know, he's like, there's something to this biological stuff. I'm like, is it biologicals or is it something else? He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, it's biostimulants or is it biologicals where it's an actually, you know, that's it's a great area we have with biological stuff right now. Is it if it's a is it actually a living organism or is it something that stimulates organisms? I mean, so technically, like a PGR would be considered a biostimulant. Um, you know, you used to work at Winfield, so Chris and all those things used to be biostimulants. Yep, exactly. They're derived from a biological source, but they're not an actual living thing. So, to be right, and and there's new ones that are out there on that. Like, um, uh, just uh, I tomorrow I got a call with some folks at Sound Agriculture that want to just let me know about their products and learn more and. I'm all ears to, to hear that stuff. And it's the same thing. It's a biostimulant. It's an, an inert ingredient as far as I understand, but it must stimulate some kind of biological response. So it kind of gets lumped in that category. Yeah. It's it's the hot thing right now. You know, corn price will solve that if the price goes down ever again. Um, there was one and it will. I was approached with, and it's like, Oh, we have this novel enzyme. It's a great enzyme. I was like, all right, so what does it do? And they, didn't really have an answer. They just said what the enzyme was. So I look it up and like, all right, so it makes 
it takes this enzyme and turns it into encourages bacteria to turn it into sugar. Like, so why don't I just apply sugar? But we know sugar doesn't do much in certain situations. So like, but what's what's so cool about this thing? You know, and but it's just a name. It says enzyme, it says biological, it's a stimulant. And that's so thing. What I what I find more fascinating about the biological world is um, all you need to do is talk to agronomists that work in specialty crops outside of your Midwest rural crop agriculture, and you start like the the Chris was a good thing. Uh, it just it sparked something in my memory. So uh, potassium hydroxide, I believe, is like one of the big ingredients that's in there, or what it's high in. I I, I don't claim to know a lot about potatoes. I brought up that product once the potatoes and I said, Hey, it's a potassium based product. It's supposed to help with stress reduction right away. I, he goes, is there potassium hydroxide in it? He goes, we use potassium hydroxide all the time, specifically yeah. for stress relief or potato. And, and right away, like you look at him, he's like, Oh yeah, yeah. We use stuff like this all the time. He's like, that sounds legit. You know, he's like, this is what we do, but every little thing they do makes a huge difference. Well, and you got to look at, you know, so if I'm a potato grower, so we we have quite a few potato acres in Wisconsin. I do not consult on potato acres. I know when I was in Northwest Indiana, they asked all of our interns one day, um, do you want to scout potatoes? And I'm not a dumbass. <laughs> and I said, thank you. Uh, some other girls like, oh, yeah, I want to I want to be the intern that like says yes to everything. And she came back. She's like, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, going up and down freaking hills and stuff all the time. Um, but, you know, if you're growing potatoes, potatoes really like that sandier ground. They like, you know, in Wisconsin, they, we grow them on the central sands. So you get up around uh, like Stevens Point. That's where all the potatoes are. So they're mm -hmm. dealing with a very specific soil type. But you get down here, we have that. Yep. And you have peat ground and you have muck ground. And then you have, you know, it's just everything in between. That's where I think a lot of these products struggle is, and somebody posted this when I was talking about the pivot thing on Twitter the other day, they said, you know, it just seems like they fit in certain situations. Same thing we saw with a veil um, back in the day. I could make a veil work um, where we actually increase phosphorus. It's a great example. It, it would work, but I couldn't make it work on the entire field. We can make it work in spots. And, but then, then you're trying to like, what am I going to do with this? You know, for us with such variability, how to, how the heck do I have three different starter tanks at three different rates on the planter? You just, you can't do that. So then it's not worth it. You know, it, it makes me money on 10 acres out of a hundred acre field. Then why am I putting it on a hundred acres? And then now I'm actually losing money. So it, 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 just, it, it's a, it's an interesting topic because I believe there's a lot of uh, validity to what the biologicals do. But it's how things get positioned and how people want to use them or maybe how you, they want to be sold. Is yeah. It's a broad it's a broad stroke. Say, hey, you use this at this rate, you get this out of it. But then once they hit bulk acres and you go across a lot of ground, all of a sudden things don't look like they were once advertised. And so biologicals if it's a biostimulant or if it's an actual true biological, it's very situational and you just got to dig down to the details of, of how you can make it work and what's your best situation. Unfortunately, there's a lot of business out there that wants to just take the 
the brush and just go, it works everywhere. And, yeah. and that makes it tough. Well, and I, I think there's some companies that are putting these products out without mm-hmm. proper testing uh, or getting the right, you know, so if I put a living bacteria in a jug, it needs to have some kind of extender or something that they can live on until I put it out in the environment it's going to go into. So there are products where you open the jug, it's still alive. There are products where you open the jug and it's dead within 24 hours. Um, or there's products where you put it in a starter fertilizer, it can live three days or it can live like 30 minutes. I mean, it just, it, it seems like they're not as stable um, and the corn price hit a certain thing and they just pushed it through. Um, and then now they're going to be struggling with that. I think when corn comes back down and some of this nitrogen stuff comes back, but I, I just don't know if there's a room in the market for all this stuff. And the problem is a lot of companies are buying this stuff up and I've got a, what nog nose on my leg. And now the other one's up. <laughs> Way to go. Kyle. <laughs> yeah. You woke them both up now. No, it's a, uh... It'll be curious how this landscape looks in another five years when when things change because you've got um you've got guys like the the CEO of Corteva, uh, Chuck Magro, that's saying that Corteva's portfolio will be twenty five percent biologicals by by the time twenty thirty or something like that hits, which is pretty crazy to think about. But um, it's a great time to be a startup in biologicals and then sell it off to these big companies. Well, and you, and, and you wonder if that's, I mean, anyone that's been in the egg the industry for any amount of time knows that things come and go, companies absorb other companies, things change, things get bought out. Um, but they're definitely making a bigger wave than they used to. Um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting. But what, what, what I'm seeing is promise in some of this is, uh, uh, I can't think of the company, but when we were in Canada here a month back, they got talking about biological fungicides. And and I, I mean, truly biological for other reasons outside of yield enhancement. And, and I think there's a fit for those because uh, look at the fungicide thing, I think is a great example. Like you couldn't use a biological fungicide by itself and expect to you know do what a regular synthetically derived chemical fungicide could yep. do but if you have a true fungicide and then these biological fungicides are actually not fungus they're generally maybe you see a supplemental increase in disease control in something like tar spot maybe there's an extra edge you know there but i don't know you know like they're talking about it for head scab for us in in small grains that there's potentially some fit for uh, some bacillus species, uh, uh, amylo liquefaction, something like that. But I think that there's so many strains of that that's out there. So will there be a future in there? Maybe. Yeah, we, we've we actually been using a biological fungicide in corn for the last couple of years, um, or last several years, uh, Ethos XB, actually. Uh, so it'd be, that's uh, put out by our uh, FMC. SFM, SFMC, yeah. Yeah, it's Capture LFR with this bacillus strain. That's a biological fungicide. I think that's uh, amylo liquefactions too, or amylo, amylo liquefaction. There's so many strains of that particular bacteria that's yeah, out there. I, 
I know uh, 2019 we had some prevent plants, and in 2020 I had some guys go out with um, Valent makes that product. I can't remember the heck of the. It's like a mycorrhizal inoculant. Um, Micro apply endo prime. I think it was right. I wish there was more of that getting done. The mycorrhizal stuff. I think that's something that uh, it conflicts so much with the heavy fungus I'd use. <laughs> that we have that if you apply a fungus to seed that has seed treatment fungicide on it is are you really canceling canceling out what you spent your money on on the well it actually did do something i mean i know we know in 20 where you know where the starter wasn't working right or anything like that you know yeah i can say it maybe it was a starter but there was for the most part it definitely was where we didn't use that micro prime so where we had that um the fallow effect or whatever that they call it we uh yep. put that stuff on and it actually worked um i don't know if i would put my money on it again but in the future hopefully we don't have that much prevent plan i mean 2019 it was almost a third of the acres in this area at least um but yeah we should be there's all these things that we can play around with but Am I going to go out and do micro apply endo prime on every acre every single year based on what happened in 2020? No, but that's the thing. It's going to be specific instances where some of these things will work. And the problem is going to be understanding where some of those are. And I I, I don't know. I the where where I have struggles and and you know, you talk to other independent agronomists and other people that do what we do, and where the struggle is is trying to get retail to sell some of this stuff. Um, I've talked to some of the actual like, companies supply these things and retail wants to only sell one or two of their products. And you're like, well, but you need these three in, in conjunction. And then you have to have this following that. And they don't want to do that. They want one thing that they can spray at V5 when they go out and, you know, they did their tissue sample at V3 and now they're going to go out with this product and that's all they want. And that's where I think farmers are, you know, if you're relying hundred percent on retail to be your agronomic source, they're going to do what's going to be convenient and what's going to make the money. And that's, that's the problem. So, right. And, and there's nothing wrong with what they're doing there. And farmers do the same thing. They, they want to have streamlined, low cost, easy to apply solutions. And so it, it's just a, uh, but, but, you know, in the end, we all want this, this this whole like idea of these biological thing to work and and to have this like one size fits all solution that makes it easy to carry just a couple of products for inventory reasons it keeps a small amount of trailer space as far as holding it on farm that's not realistic to make these things well, truly work i put a video on tiktok where i talked about re regenerative i said i think they're missing the mark because it's They've got 100% market penetration as far as, you know, what people are going to be, um, where are going to be adopters of their regenerative stuff. I mean, the, the regen stuff is, as you can see, cap already. Um, the regenerative stuff is is essentially, if, if I'm a guy that's going to be regenerative farming, I bought in 100%. I'm 100% in the first time I see it. You know, I, that's all I'm doing. Um, the problem is Joe Blow Farmer that wants to do the easy parts or adopt some of the practices. They almost kind of like chide them for only wanting to try one thing. 
oh, you're only going to do this or you're only going to do that. No, 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 no. You got to do this for five years. And that's when you see the benefit from it. And the problem is they, they kind of create this tension and you almost turn off guys from the whole thing. And, you know, you see that with some of the no-till stuff. You see it with some of the cover crop stuff. It's like, unless you cover crop every single acre, you're not a cover cropper. And it's like, okay. We're uh, too small. We're too small of a group in agriculture period yeah. to be elbowing people out just because they're not doing it how you do it. Yep. I mean, that's a, it, we're probably one of the most competitive and critical groups of each other, unfortunately, between farmers and those of us that work in agriculture. And I, and I don't know why it's a terrible, terrible thing that, you know, we all want to keep our, that we have some status or competitive edge or whatever that, yeah, like you said, if you're not cover cropping everything or you're not no-tilling everything, like there's just places that that doesn't work. You know, there's some places that if they were to adopt no-till practices with the heavy clays and irrigation that they have, they they couldn't grow the same crops. They couldn't get into the ground to plant things in the correct amount of time. Well, so the thing with, with like cover crops, it's so um, you watch any things on recycling. So what's I mean, if you watch what's going on in recycling right now, um, aluminum cans, they'll still is still fairly recyclable. There are some things paper, um, but for the most part, plastics, we ship it like overseas and then they dump it in a pit somewhere because plastic isn't working anything. Um, I was watching a thing the other day on what news program was. Essentially, if you turn on the water to clean out a aluminum can you've totally eliminated the carbon saving that you're going to have by recycling that can it, i mean it's just it's insane the amount of things that you know when i was a kid i'm sure we're about the same age yep. i look older but um <laughs> more gray area than you. um but you know when we were kids captain planet he's our hero he's going to bring pollution down to zero um mm -hmm. But my wife is so onto the board of, you know, she tries to recycle every single thing she can. And, you know, recycling is so great. Uh, I was watching a program where somebody was like, I drive 40 miles out of my way to go to recycling. And then uh, there's John Stossel interviewed the recycling place she goes to. And they're like, oh, yeah, we we dump it in the, the local landfill. <laughs> it's just like and she, he's like questioning her, you know, if you're driving 40 miles just to recycle two bags of recyclables how much carbon are you putting into the environment to save you know it just it's it's this thing where we have to be careful of that you know are we offsetting something else i don't know if that's going to be the case and at some point i i i i'm tracking where you're going with this now because uh that's uh recycling works the same thing here uh the city of dickinson where i live oh you have we to. have we, we we have we have a recycling program we do it i i believe in that but um all of it gets shipped to Minneapolis. So that's a seven hour drive. Yep. Freight that's probably longer. And that's where it gets processed. And I don't know what they do with it after that. For all we know, it probably does end up in the landfill. Who knows? It's entirely uh, possible. They said the plastic, they can't make any money off of plastic. I mean, at, at the way it was pitched was that it, you're going to save this money and it's going to save the environment. Um, there was a guy that Stossel interviewed on one of these, these programs talking about how you know, he said 
it's a money loser for municipalities. They're, they're not saving the environment. They're, they're losing money on this. And he said, you know, Sasla asked him, why are they still doing it? He said, because public pressure, peer pressure, they want to have a recycling program. And he's like, and they enforce it. And they want it's, to be enforced by, if you don't do it, we're going to fine you. Well, I think that's where a lot of the carbon sequestration stuff comes on the farming end. I, I see where you're bringing this around now because yep. it's, uh, <laughs> I just, we get ultra critical. We get ultra critical on yep. farming, right? About, uh, you know, sequestering enough carbon as you possibly can. But really, are we really focusing in the wrong areas? Because if you look at this nationally or globally, the the farming, the way things are done, I think it's such a small contributor. If if you convert a few people, wouldn't wouldn't there be more concern over being more economical with how you produce your food and and come up with ways to uh, be more efficient with it? Where sometimes the I I like the regenerative idea, but there's going to be places that that doesn't fit. I'm I'm searching U.S. food waste. This, this is always my favorite one. It's uh, I'm, it's got to be high. I just I it 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 pains me to yeah. Forty percent of all the food we we produce is wasted into landfills. Yeah, yeah, and that's it's, that's the thing. It's you, sickening to think, but yeah, that's yeah, and that's that's the struggle I think we have is you know. Um, are we, you know, agriculture so small and we're trying to save all this stuff and, you know, is it, there's some other place that we could go with some of these things that actually would save more. Um, there was, um, Stephanie Porter posted something on Twitter the other day talking about, uh, I think she was at Iowa state, Iowa state had a thing saying that, uh, when they planted green into cover crops with corn, they were losing like. I don't know if it was 30 or 40 bushels, they need to add that much more nitrogen, 30 or 40 pounds more, just to make that work. And then literally people are like, no, 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 they're wrong. I might yield it. Yeah. Well, in their research, it's one thing. In another person's research, it could be something else. And it's, you know, field to field, farm to farm, it might be different. And is it every oh, situation so different? Yep. Yeah, and and making fun think, of somebody for not growing cover crops. You know, I have people that lost yield this year for planting cover crops, you know, it, it happens in, are they going to plant cover crops again? Yes. Are they going to plant it on the scale they were at? Nope. And, and it, and it's a learning curve for some things like actually, uh, so we had, a uh, you, your guys's extension weed specialist, Rodrigo Worley. Yep. Yep. Rod Rodrigo was in Fargo last week and he was sharing some of the work that he's been talking about this winter on the cover crop thing and and how many tons of biomass you need to have yep basically like that kind of cover cropping that makes total sense to me that has a real purpose because you're you're inhibiting water hemp seed germination and getting real effective control but he he shared there's a lot of pitfalls it it works but it's not you know what do we consider effective control is like 90 percent Rodrigo's data shows like 75% control with just the rye on its own. So you're right. Right. And, and it's just, it's just a, yeah, it's just, it's just one little piece and or a cog in the wheel, so to speak yep. of, of what to do. But I mean, it's uh, yeah, it was just, but, but he talked about, there's a lot of pitfalls, you know, like a lot of guys were reporting like, Hey, we lost yield by doing this because we weren't equipped to plant into this green or we didn't know like when to terminate or, how to do this right. And they actually lost out on that where they're 
it it takes a while to get into that system and learn it. I've got guys that are so committed to planting green that, you know, they will not terminate it head or in advance. Well, there was a couple of years ago we were so dry, and again this year we had we had like 85, 90 degrees in May during planting this year, and guys are so committed to planting green. They sucked all the moisture out. Their corn was uneven germinated. You know, the emergence was all over the place. Um, you know, it was like the hills were two weeks behind the rest of the field. And it took forever for it to catch up. And then this fall, it's a point or two wetter, and it's 10 or 20 bushels less in the yield. And if they would have terminated it two weeks in advance, they would have been just fine. But that's the thing. It's like it's turned into I plant green. That That's my thing hell or high water we're planting green you know at the same point we need to make some of these decisions ahead of ahead of time and manage these cover crops and that's that's where guys miss out i think they're just so committed to the look you know it's almost like uh you're walking down the street with your recycling bin when you're planting green you're just like look at me i'm recycling i'm planting green Mm -hmm. but you know if you kill that cover crop off you're probably money ahead in certain years not every year but certain years well, and it, it, it's it's kind of cool what I've, I see what they're doing now at the university level because now they're kind of pooling their resources and it's like a consortium of yep. multiple states. And North Dakota, we're a great example of where most years you have to terminate that early because we don't have the moisture. Yeah. And and you, yeah, we, we have more data on negative yield effect because you didn't terminate it soon enough. Well, and here we've seen it where you can plant green, you can get into the field sooner. But should you be in the field sooner, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's dry enough to plant. It's still wet, mm -hmm. um, but you can drive equipment on it and not leave ruts, but you're going to create compaction. And then you're also going to have really bad sidewall compaction and the potential your your seed trench isn't going to close. And just because I can drive on it doesn't mean that it's this miracle thing that compaction goes away and all these things just, you know, soil tilth is one thing, but soil health and the way that we've traditionally done soil has not changed that stuff is still there it's, it's you can still cause mm -hmm. compaction on no-till um and you can't get it out of no-till well i'll plant radishes when that radish hits that compaction layer it'll just go to the side and then it pops the radish <laughs> right that, you know maybe they'll throw some hair roots through there you maybe you're better off with you know ryegrass and then you're going to plug up your tile and you know you, you got to understand these things and it doesn't mean you're a bad farmer if you can't grow cover crops it just means that that management is not fitting your style. And mm -hmm. it, to me, you know, there are agronomy people here that get paid to sell cover crop acres to municipalities for offsets of uh, phosphorus emissions from wastewater treatment facilities or anything else. And there's several of them that have done it. And the only reason they're pushing cover crops is they're getting paid by the government. You know, maybe they feel good about them, whatever it is, but you know, they're getting paid by the government to do this. And you know, government's paying these cover crop groups to do all this stuff. It's totally fine. But if it's, you know, well, if we don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. Or the government's going to mandate it. Uh, you know how many times I've heard government's going to mandate stuff and it doesn't happen? Usually it goes the other way or some other president gets in there and Yeah, it's 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 good to be proactive and in, in adopt some of these things, but you're right. It needs to be uh not everything's a one size fits all you but, need to be adaptive and know when things could work and when they don't and and i wish like with some of the programs like csp and 
and uh, some of these others, like I wish there was just a little more adaptability to some of that because on certain years, the the cover crop thing is a no brainer. It works and guys jump in and do that kind of stuff. And then there's other years where all they're doing is just going through the motions of doing, it, and it didn't really do anything good as well, far as the soil saw, health aspect goes. See the the drought last year. There were guys that were like, if you would have put a cover crop on that, because there was like some dust bowl type. You know, they were wow. You you can't establish on. anything because <laughs> you like, don't have to get it out of the ground three months ago, and it didn't even grow because it didn't rain since then. You know, it's, it, and I haven't worked the ground. I just planted. You know, and that's the thing. That is where we've gotten with the cover crop thing. We've gotten so far to the point of cover crop fixes every single thing. No, no, it doesn't. It you know, even if there was a cover crop on there, it wouldn't have grown because there's no moisture. You can't defeat no moisture with cover crop. And it just doesn't fix every single thing. And that's, that's where it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like this biological conversation we just had. (laughs) Um, It's not a one size fits all. Now it works on certain parts of fields on certain acres and it helps a lot in certain circumstances, but it probably isn't a broad stroke thing. Yeah. And I think that's, that's anything in agriculture should be that way. And that's, no one should be shamed for not wanting to do everything you know, you don't have to, and that's, everybody's got the right to run their business the way they want to. That's, I've got guys that like cover crops. I've got guys that hate them. I've got guys that, you know, they, they do UAN because urea is the devil and, you know, it, it is to each his own. It's not mm-hmm. enough to judge them or we're basically hired to help them make that work the best way it can. And that's why I don't understand why there's guys that, you know, if you're going to consult with me or if you're going to be one of my consult client or consulting clients, you have to be no-till or plant cover crops or whatever it is. That to me is just the wrong way to do it. I yeah. Know. There's, there's definitely not a one size fits all. It's just agronomy is unique. Uh, weeds are complex. Soil <laughs> systems are complex. Fertility is complex. So why, why do we think that there's an easy button to just plug and play and go with it? If, if farming was easy, I think there'd be other people that have our jobs too. And, and farmers too, I'm talking to you guys, you know, just like there'd be other people farming too. Like it takes a certain kind of person to want to really take on the challenges that farming has. You know, I was thinking this morning, I, this is going to be a future podcast episode. So we're not going to go too far and do this, but the best time to ever be a farmer or uh, an emerging agronomist, I think it was the early two thousands into the early 20 teens. You know, if you look at it, we could still kill most soybean cyst nematodes with PI-88, 788. We had rootworm traits that worked and new ones that were coming. Um, it, Roundup it, killed most things. <laughs> yeah, Roundup, 32 ounces. I had a, one of the Roundup sticks and 22 ounces of Roundup was 12-inch ragweed. And, you know, it, it just had all these things. We had really good rootworm control. You had easy button was on everything. I mean, you spray two passes of Roundup on anything and it would have kept it clean all year. You know, I think that was like the golden era. And if you're a farmer, your wheat control for beans was like 15 bucks an acre. You know, it just was so easy. And um, you didn't have to put insecticides on and we didn't have resistant weeds. And just a daydream now, that kind of stuff. It's like living in the days of what it used to be like. (laughs) Yeah, it used to have like furidan before. I mean, we had toxic. You know, and eradicane and all these things that were just terrible. Lasso on. You just name it, and you know you couldn't kill the weeds because you didn't have good chemistry and broad spectrum stuff. And 
Now, yeah, I think that was like the decade to be a farmer or an agronomist was the early 2000s into the early 20 teens. It just, if you look at everything, we had literally everything going for us. We had the easy button. And now it's turning. And there was a string of those years where you made some good money too. Yeah. Yeah. 2012 actually was financially probably one of the best years of farming has ever seen in this area. Oh, yeah. Really yeah, it crop, was. But insurance and the crop prices made up for it. And we didn't we didn't get the nasty drought that you guys got, although we were dry. We got some really uh, saving rains towards the uh, middle is, of the season, and it really made some beans and corn, and, and our wheat wasn't even that bad for so out here, too. Dry for you guys, like, 12 inches of annual rainfall? Because, like... Well, where I live now, that would be a good year if we yeah, <laughs> 12, 12 to 15 where it was on the east end of the state. Um, yeah, that that was probably more in the dry side is to be in that 12 inch range for the yeah. annual. Yeah, for us, I mean, we're our annual rainfall is about 32 to 35 inches. So, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> we we live in like fractions of your annual rainfall. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty blown away what we can produce with four or five inches of rain during the growing season. If you get the right soil type, uh, honestly, here, we are almost better on the verge of a drought. Um, we we just get so much rain. It just seems like with the heavy clays that we do a lot better almost when we're on the verge of a drought. I got areas that aren't that way uh, in this area, but the vast majority of us in southeast Wisconsin would do better if we had a drought stress because the crop seems to respond to it. It just does better. It's a little nerve wracking, but the, these uh, semi dry years actually. Uh, I'm going to use this here as an example. There's some guys that knocked out some stellar corn yields, and we hardly got a lick of rain from the July four all the way to harvest. Yeah, my grass is brown from probably the end of June through the end of August, and I think we we got a couple of saving rainfalls, and I had fields that were curling up fully tasseled our five and a half corn that was you're like man this isn't going to be good and it ended up being some maybe second or third best yield in some of these guys farm history and mm. uh, even last year we had severe drought stress i would say in august where corn was burning up firing on edges and best year we ever seen so it mm. just it, it seems like our hybrids everything else has kind of come into play and, and the amount of nitrogen we put on it it really we have benefited from lower rainfall years but yeah i know my there's 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 something to be said a lot of corn hybrids have been bred for stress tolerance and it shows because they do well and i mean stress moisture stress yeah yeah i mean i don't know i think when i first started in wisconsin our average yield was a plot winner was 200 bushel corn I, I've got guys now that would be mad if they got a 200 bushel field average, you know, and the plot winners are 250 plus, maybe almost 300. Mm -hmm. So you're eventually we're getting that way. And it, it's funny. It doesn't seem like it's going up that fast, but it really does. But you have those bad years that bring it down and then you're like, oh, there's no way we're going to get back there. Yeah, I got some whiny dogs because their mom is not home yet. <laughs> it's getting it's getting time it's uh yeah it's dinner time dark here so yeah they're now getting really excited but <laughs> yeah it's it's nice to catch up with you guys um you know i i've got we've got a lot of friends kind of all over the the country and actually in other countries now too you know i just we talked to a lot of different people i think that's the thing 
agriculture is such a close-knit community, but sometimes we're too close-knit. Um, you know, people like to focus on their own area. And if you can get out and actually see some people in other parts of the country, it, it really is nice to do. Oh my gosh, it's fun. <laughs> just, just it's so much you can learn and so much that maybe things aren't similar, but you could, it puts things in perspective and maybe there are things that you can take and use in your own area, in your own operation. Yep. Yeah. I think, uh, I got a lot of friends in Iowans and, uh, there was that tornado that went through Williamsburg, Iowa last week. And I was watching a storm chaser and I was like, holy crap, that's Jeremy Miner's house. I know. It's just, oh, wow. <laughs> I've been there before. I know whose house that is. But I mean, it's just, it's funny to get around and, and see people. I, I try to encourage guys to do that, but you know, it, it's hard to get out and, and do that in anybody's situation, unless it's on a beach in Florida. Sometimes it, it really probably isn't going to get done. You only have so much time and we, and we work, we work a job and industry that kind of demands a lot of our time, definitely certain times of the year when it would be nice to go see how everyone does their own thing. I guess that's why social media is nice and the whole podcasting thing and all that. You get you get a little look into everyone's life and how they do stuff. I'd like to thank our guest, Kyle Oki, for coming on the podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed our discussion today, talking about all these different topics. If you know anybody else wants to be on the podcast, definitely let me know. Our social media on Stall Agronomy on TikTok, Stall Agronomy on Twitter, and Stall Agronomy on Facebook. Thank you for listening to the Rogue Agronomist Podcast. Be sure to check out our website, stallagronomy.com, and our other social media for more information and other episodes.